Conspiracy is quite a sensationalist word, one that I never use. But that's the word I couldn't help but ringing in my head whilst reading the gripping report published by Cage recently, which, after a year of digging, uncovered a secretive network of organisations allegedly funded by the government in order to covertly push out certain propaganda messages as though they were genuine, grassroots narratives from the Muslim community. These revelations sparked off quite a controversy, uncovering what some people have called an attempt to socially engineer the so-called good Muslim in Britain. Let's take it back to the beginning. What is this report actually about? So Cage has been working on a year-long investigation looking at the inner details of the government's covert sort of uh, propaganda programme. Ibrahim Mahmoud, communications officer at Cage. Uh, you may have seen sort of recent uh, reference to that in The Guardian, the front page in The Guardian, 4th of May. So our report, titled uh, We Are Complete Independent, is looking at, in our view, how the government has attempted to mislead the public uh, in creating uh, forms of propaganda. And when we say propaganda, in this particular instance, we're talking about messaging narratives, uh, counter-narratives in particular, that are trying to be seeped into the Muslim community by a number of so-called organisations who have claimed to be independent. Uh, and those organisations may have been uh, aware, and they're happy that's the case. And there are some organisations that have not been aware whatsoever, and they have been misled or duped into uh, being a part of this. So what we've uncovered is that there is a private media, uh, so private public uh, PR company, a public relations company uh, called Breakthrough Media, uh, which has been working um, via the Home Office's department called RICU, which is the Research Information Communications Unit. Um, and together, they have, in some cases, supported existing organisations with, uh, with social media support, uh, logistical support, technical support, and also narrative, language, and projects, films, uh, on, on even campaigns. Uh, on the on sort of pushing out a counter narrative, so they want to push out narratives about extremism, radicalization, terrorism, and so forth, and counter narratives to those that they allege are coming from so-called extremists. Why do they have to do this secretly? Clearly, the government has not been successful. I mean, why on earth would you need to go to all this lengths to use something called the Official Secrets Act? So some of the people who are working for Breakthrough Media, this private media company, uh, by law, were forced to sign a, a document, a non-disclosure document, which has the power for you to be prosecuted uh, for breaking official secrets. I mean, it's a treasonable offence in the UK. Uh, so that shows the extent to the cover-up and to like, the secrecy, that they were not willing for this to get out whatsoever. Um, and also, yeah, the other point to, point to mention as well is that Breakthrough Media as an organisation um, is a way that the government has tried to create some distance between themselves and the organisation. But in reality, thanks to the efforts of our two authors, they've actually uncovered a number of very clear links and relations between uh, Breakthrough Media, this government sort of research and information communication unit in the Home Office, and some of the organisations and projects. So I think that's the key. Why to why go, why go to so much great lengths to cover up something uh, if you're so confident that it's a very strong, acceptable uh, you know project or campaign that the community will accept? It's not. Well, you would think one would only push out messages secretly if they either didn't believe those messages were strong enough to push out publicly, or they didn't trust those they were pushing the messages to. 
I, I think it's been clear for a long time um, that the government doesn't trust Muslim communities. One of the authors of the report is Dr. Ben Hayes, a researcher and consultant. You know, this is part of the problem for, for many years now, really since the inception of Prevent. Um, you know, the Muslim community has been cast um, as a suspect community. There's been, you know, all sorts of um, measures and proposals bandied around about, you know, links between Islam, extremism, terrorism. Um, and I think what our report shows and what is striking is just um, how, you know, the extent that the UK government is prepared to go to try to control the narrative. Um, yes, you know, part of this is about, you know, com you know, genuine, you know, organizations who genuinely want to combat ISIS, extremism, stop people heading off to Syria and all the rest of it. But if you look more broadly at, at what this program was about and how it was conceived, you know, this very idea that the best way for the UK government to get its message out to the Muslim community is to cultivate this sort of network of grassroots so-called um, independent organizations and then you know produce these really very slick um, high-end messaging it, it's that to me that is you know it's so extremely worrying um, it, it really is and it, I think it's almost you know unprecedented certainly since the Cold War and I, I think that's it, it's that that's going to have surprised a lot of people so it's about extremism for a few years now we have been preparing for new powers to the state being passed to crack down on so-called extremist behavior. And there has been an increasing reaction from all quarters in society as to the apparently draconian and frankly un-British nature of these proposed measures. This reminds me of an interview where the Home Secretary Theresa May was challenged on some of these new measures by a BBC Radio 4 presenter. One of the reasons for looking at this issue of extremism is the path down which it can lead people. And what we can see often is that this uh, extremist preaching, this, this uh, message of hatred, this message of intolerance can actually lead down a path of radicalisation. And what I'm trying to get you to define is, is at what point it strays into that area, at what point it doesn't become just a disagreement with you or me or the bloke next door or the woman next door. It becomes something that should worry us to the extent that it should be banned. That's what I'm trying to get at. At what point does it qualify for being banned? And obviously, when we introduce the legislation which has these banning orders, one of the tasks in that legislation will be to ensure that we have the definitions uh, you don't properly know yet. so that they can... Well, we have a definition of extremism, which we have in our extremism strategy. But, but you seem to be saying you'll know it promoting. when you see it, which is a bit no, unsatisfactory, I'm not saying we know it when we see it. John, the whole process of introducing legislation in this country is that actually you start off with the principle of what we want to do, which is to ensure that we can promote British values, the values so that unite us as it, promoting British values. You can't have legislation to promote British values, can no, you? A we, law that says these are our values and we and if you don't agree with them, then, well, well, what? You go to jail? I mean, how do you but, promote British values but, in a legalistic sense? I think, I suspect that there are many people listening to this programme who feel that actually we haven't as a society in the past been positive enough about the values that unite us as a society. But what does that mean? That's, um, well, for, it, forgive me for using the phrase again, but, but that's a bit woolly, isn't it? Positive enough. I mean, I could run out into the street now and you couldn't say, look, these are the values we all stand for. Wonderful, wonderful. Somebody else would come along and say, rubbish, I believe in something different. Now, at what point, what I'm, and what I'm really puzzled by is how you get to define the 
the, the line, you draw the line at which you've crossed over that line and it's unacceptable, legally unacceptable. Well, that is, if I may, that's, I mean, the one part of what we're doing is the legislation which has the banning orders, the disruption orders, the ability to close premises. And that will For have very what? clearly, For very clearly what? within it, will have definitions of extremism. We've set out a definition of extremism at the moment, but we'll, we'll very clearly set out in the legislation how those banning orders will operate. So what and is what extremism? Because but, we have loads of laws that ban, for instance, hate speech, all sorts of laws. You obviously can't incite violence. That is a criminal offence. You go to jail for it. What What is it that we are trying to ban? Well, we are trying to deal with those uh, situations, with those in our society who are actively operating or promoting an extremism, which is undermining. I know you, you say that promoting our values is something that you say is, is woolly, but actually well, what it's valuable, people are trying of course, to do... But it's, it, but it's well, thank you. It is, clearly it's is, woolly it because it, it could mean anything, couldn't it? I mean, depending on who you are. If, for instance, you believe in gay marriage, fine, that is a value for you. If you don't believe in gay marriage, you're absolutely entitled not to believe in gay marriage, and presumably you would still be entitled to say, I don't believe in gay marriage of I, think, I, I think it damages society uh, yes but, but that, not, so that would offend not, your values but what we're talking about is the the key values that, un, that undermine that uh, underline our society and are being undermined by the extremists values like democracy a belief in democracy a belief in the rule of law a belief in tolerance uh, for other people a, a, a equality an acceptance of all other right. people's faiths and religions we all have the, one of the great things about living in the United Kingdom is that we all have a right to live our lives as we choose to live our lives but we also have a responsibility to respect other people's right to live their lives as they choose but to on, live on, on, and what we are sorry John, because hmm. I think this is important what we are seeing is people undermining what I would call those fundamental values of democracy and the rule of law and of tolerance of, of, uh, of other people and doing that in a way which can lead people down the route of radicalisation and then obviously can lead them right. into, into violence and into taking action. Although the presenter did his best to put some logic into the conversation about the contradiction of banning so-called extremist speech and freedom of expression, she kept on repeating something very troubling the conveyor belt theory of radicalization. I had always been extremely surprised by the great chasm between politicians and ideologues on the one hand and academics on the other when it came to their deeply fallacious arguments using the words extremism and radicalization. And I thought to myself, I've heard this all before. The meeting of the topics of extremism and radicalization on one hand with covert government propaganda tactics on the other reminded me of the work of Professor Arun Kunnani, the author of the book The Muslims Are Coming, Islamophobia, Extremism and the Domestic War on Terror, who also spoke of the history of the United States also pushing out narratives that ended up silencing activists under the pretext of so-called radicalization. So the thing about radicalization is, is that it, it kind of blurs the distinction between someone being involved in some kind of criminal violence and the kind of political ideas that are associated with that violence, right? And it kind of um, blurs that distinction. That's kind of what is distinctive about this concept, right? And if you um, understand that and go back through the history of uh, national security agencies in the US over the last century, you can see that's a kind of recurring theme, right? So, um, you know, one of the things that, um, that I write about in the book is, is where do you first see a government agency that is using 
uh, informants to target political activism, right? And actually, as far as I can tell, the first time that happens is in, in the Philippines, when the US has a colonial regime in the Philippines at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, you have in Manila um, political activists who are, who are organizing uh, for the independence of the Philippines from US colonialism. And the, uh, a specialist police unit is set up by the colonial regime to run informants among the Filipino nationalists, gather information about their political activities, um, and to run uh, agent provocateurs to criminalize people, to kind of push them into committing acts that you can then um, arrest them for, and to run kind of disinformation campaigns, right? That's the first time I think that you see that kind of systematic thing going on. Um, and then after World War I, you see those same kind of practices coming back to the US mainland, right? So one of the things we know about um, when, you, when you have colonialism, the practices that you think are legitimate in that colonial setting sooner or later come back to the homeland, right? Coming from Britain, we've seen that repeatedly, you know, whether it's colonialism in Ireland or India, those things always come back home. Mm -hmm. So um, the same thing happens in the US after World War I you start to get the creation of a, a kind of national security set up that aims to um, use these kinds of practices and these ways of thinking to target people who are engaged in legitimate political activity. So at the time, the main concern is around um, labor activism, right? And so um, you blur the distinction between someone who's involved in um, you know, trade union activity, organizing workers, and um, you, you frame them as, as um, you know, a, a subversive threat that, that's in some form of, you know, communist extremism or something like that. So it's essentially the same move that you get with, with the kind of radicalization models that we see today, um, but in a very different setting. And that's when you, you know, you see the Palmer raids, um, large numbers of people who are, who are involved in the labor movement are, are rounded up and deported. Um, the famous, the famous, um, uh, wording from the from the legal process around this is the the phrase from Oliver Wendell Holmes, who talks about um, you know the, the limit of free speech is when someone shouts fire in a crowded theatre, right? It's the famous thing that any law student quotes. But the, the actual case that that comes from is a case of anarchists who were who were writing um, articles um, criticizing the U.S. involvement in World War One, right? So uh, it's kind of a, a, you know, a classic example of how totally legitimate constitutional activity advocating for, for a particular political position um, can get interpreted as criminal activity, right? Mm -hmm. And obviously the irony is, is in a context where, you know, huge numbers of people are dying in, in this war in Europe, the one who's shouting fire is the anarchist advocating for yeah. peace, right? So, um, and then if you come, you know, then if you come forward to the kind of post-World War II period, Obviously, in the Cold War, again, it's, it's communism that is the, is the kind of extremist threat of the day. Um, but then within that notion of, of communist extremism, all kinds of different kinds of politics and, and activities can get wrapped up, right? So whether it's the civil rights movement, um, whether it's people advocating for uh, Puerto Rican independence, whether it's you know, student activists, um, they can all get folded into this notion of extremism and therefore targeted using these same kinds of practices. Um, informants, um, disinformation campaigns, um, provocation strategies to criminalize people, um, most famously in the case of COINTELPRO, which is the FBI's program to um, initially to target communists, but then eventually it becomes used against um, black power movement and so forth. So um, 
you know, there's a, there's a con continuity going back 100 years right up to the present period of the kind of post 9-11 period of these kinds of ways of thinking and these practices. Extremism is a word devised by the government to describe a group of people whom the government doesn't like, basically. Dr. Rizwan Sabir, lecturer in criminology at Liverpool John Moores University. If you pursue or follow uh, the roots of this word extremism when it's compared with the moderate term, it dates back to colonial India and when the British had uh, colonial rule over India. So extremism was a word used to describe those people who were essentially saying that the British Empire needs to go away and let the Indian people rule according to their own desires and their own structures. The moderates, on the other hand, were the people who were saying the British can stay, but please give us land reform. So that word extremist and moderate was used to basically describe a group of people calling for particular things. That word has now been essentially um, reconstructed to describe um, extremists. The word has been reconstructed to describe a group of people who do not agree with what the British government is basically doing at home in regards to Muslims and uh, political issues, but also abroad those who challenge um, government, a British and American or Western uh, hegemonic power. By hegemonic power, I mean cultural, military and actual all domains of power. So that's the word extremist is used to describe. Extremist is also used to describe terrorists and people involved in political violence. Um, but now it's been extended to describe people who are non-violent, people who share ideas and viewpoints that are disliked by the government. I'm always quite uncomfortable to hear organs of state power use the term radicalization or extremism, given its vested interest in quelling any threat to its authority. This is especially so with the kind of simplistic rhetoric and sensationalist narratives that we've heard from neoconservatives who have imported their Islamophobia from the USA. And we've seen a massive reaction from academics to journalists to politicians to activists alike, exposing these false narratives of ideology causing terrorism or political violence. After 9-11, um, I think for the first couple of years, um, when people are trying to make sense of, of this question of terrorism that suddenly kind of, um, you know, the, the kind of preeminent question in, in, in national security policy, um, People are, are using these very simple kind of formulae of, you know, well, these people just hate us, they hate our freedom, you know, there's an evil ideology out there. And it's, it's, this is the kind of um, neoconservative kind of analysis. But very soon you start to get um, academics and um, people who are a little bit more thoughtful in the national security communities um, who, who are trying to say, well, let's try and develop a model of how someone goes from being um, an ordinary member of the public to becoming a terrorist, right? So it's, it's, you know, it's, and actually that's absolutely right. That's exactly what we should be doing. It's thinking about what causes terrorism, not just seeing it as this thing that comes out of nowhere, right? So, um, so you start to get the concept of radicalization introduced as a, as a way to describe that process of like, how is someone made into a terrorist, right? Unfortunately, rather than um, pursuing that question in um, an objective scholarly way, um, you have a very narrow idea of what might make someone a terrorist. And it comes down to, in all these models, whether it's the academic ones or the, um, the law enforcement agency ones, it comes down to the idea that some, some kind of ideology can kind of grip someone and turn them into becoming violent, right? Um, now, when you look at these studies that try and 
come up with empirical data to back that up. The, the studies just don't stand up to, you know, even the most basic level of um, scholarly rigor. They use a very false logic in how they come to their conclusions. Asim Qureshi, research director at CAGE. There's no empirical evidence to suggest that there's a causation. You know, causally, if you believe a certain thing, that you will end up with violence. So if you look at, for example, David Cameron's uh, latest counter-extremism strategy, you know, he goes on ad nauseum about something that they term Islamist extremism. And they say, well, it's when you have a specific worldview, it's when you believe in the Sharia, it's when you believe that Allah is a sole legislator, uh, and so on and so forth. And then they go on to say, well, you know, if you, if you believe or have an affiliation or affinity to the works of Abu al-Ala Maududi, uh, to Hassan al-Banna, to Sayyid Qutub, then these are all, you know, kind of indicative of you being some kind of Islamist extremist. But the problem is, is that they use a very false logic in how they come to their conclusions. So one very good example of this is um, uh, the bookseller of Birmingham case, uh, the Ahmed Faraz trial, where the government argued in his case because he sold copies of Sayyid Qutb's milestones or some of uh, Abdullah Azam's works, which you know are very kind of famous modern classic books. You know that you know that these led to the radicalization of people and therefore he should be uh, convicted of dissemination of terrorism publications. This is what he was convicted of in the end. The logic was this, that there have been this many terrorism plots and in about 70% of those terrorism plots, those individuals had copies of these books on their bookshelf. And so there is a causal link between these books and people committing these acts of terrorism. What's wrong with that logic? Well, the, the, it's a flawed logic, because actually what you want to do to understand whether or not these books cause political violence is to take when Sayyid Qutb wrote his Fidul al-Qur'an, or Milestones, or when Abu al Maududi wrote his works, look at every single person who has ever read or interacted with those books, and then see how many people have gone on to commit acts of political violence. That's the real test. That's the real mathematical equation that we want to be thinking about and looking at. And when you look at that data set, then you start to understand actually it's very few. So few it becomes infinitesimal. And what does that tell us? Well, it's not about ideology. It's never been about ideology. If you look at almost every single act of political violence, in the words of the people who committed themselves, they say this is to do with policy, to do with foreign policy or domestic policy. And that is the elephant in the room that they don't want you to deal with because, you know, let's be honest, what happens when they deal with that? They say to themselves, well, actually, you know what? We got it wrong all these years. For the last 13 years, we prosecuted this war on terror, and actually it's the, the root causes are foreign and domestic policy. That means they have to rethink the entirety of their national security apparatus. We're talking about thousands of jobs, entire institutions, policy that they've put into place, which, you know, in all honesty, it's going to be too difficult for them to, to move away from. He's right. There is always going to be some resistance when the government realises it's invested so much time and energy into a fundamentally flawed policy. Well, there's always been a lag between enlightened thinking scientific discoveries and so forth on one hand and government policy 
uh, based on outdated presumption on the other hand it's happened with climate change you know the, the invention of the internet uh, civil rights whatever and we look forward to a more intelligent evidence-based model to deal with the problem of political violence but it is unfortunate that instead of moving towards embracing the facts in the face of so much opposition from academics and activists against neoconservative narratives about so-called extremism that some in the government have apparently adopted a clandestine way to secretly push out their flawed and counterproductive narratives and that's one reason the cage report was very very important you know we went to great pains in the report to say look you know th- th- this isn't really about you know what these groups are saying it's not even really about um taking money from government you know it's about the hoodwinking of the public you know the public has to know the difference between a genuine grassroots campaign and government messaging you know it, it, it I, i've worked with ngos small and large all over the world for 20 years you know and and we have to maintain this you know separation of powers between the security state um the police the intelligence services on one hand and you know civil society public services the education sector on the other you know and without that you know the, the, it it's so damaging you know and the, the the problem that this causes in terms of trust really um cannot be understated so this whole idea about independence is quite important we at cage been arguing for a long, for a very long time that uh, any a, a healthy society needs to have an independent civil society at the heart of it and what we don't want is government organized government or government itself or government uh, that is having a very dark hand in terms of trying to direct the language and the messaging within communities on a certain issue so to be very clear our concern this goes beyond conventional understandings of prevent it's not about money it goes way beyond that this is really about the idea that a government can try and co-opt an organization and no one's not being aware of them being co-opted in some cases and in other cases the organization being fully aware of what is happening and trying to push out certain messages and certain types of language with regards to extremism radicalization uh terrorism violence what it means to be british british values the list goes on what is a number of things we're calling for uh in relation to the government we're calling for them to be open and transparent in particular to the muslim communities be straight with them be honest with them be genuine if you want to engage with them genuinely you need to you need to engage with the credible voices uh that could help to bring about conversation on any issue affects all of us and that people are concerned about naturally so first of all it's for them to actually come clean uh with regards to their relationships with these so-called independent groups uh that's been operating uh within you know with breakthrough media and this recu department within the home office uh that government's got to change the attitude it's high time we need to have a a, a relation of respect of consideration rather than contempt and deceit uh in open sight at the UK uh surely it's time that you know that there should be genuine engagement in resolving issues rather than trying to manufacture support for the government's view and its programs it's ridiculous uh and also the government should also try like we mentioned again to engage with credible voices and take into account their suggestions and criticisms in order to produce a viable solution so for example the government must acknowledge that prevent is a toxic brand it's failed uh, people feel that is state sanctioned that it maintains the status quo perpetuates the idea of of muslim communities being a suspect one and its framework needs to be you know completely you know scrapped i mean it's just something that is way too toxic and is beyond any repair whatsoever um 
With regards to the uh, organizations involved or, or named in this report, uh, it's really important for them that they've got a, a responsibility and a duty to the beneficiaries. Um, you know, they're giving out, they're providing a service of some sort, uh, and their engagement of prevention made public for people to make a decision on their own. I mean, how can people engage in an organization if they're not informed as to the nature of the organization's uh, dealings? With regards to, uh, and also I think on this point in particular, uh, that it's really important that if there has been any uh, funding that's been used for counter-narratives, uh, whether it be from central government or from local government, uh, that they should be identified and that they should come clean in regards to that. So then people again have the confidence to make a sort of informed decision based on whether to engage or how to engage with that organisation. Um, with regards to the wider civil society, we've been very clear that the strength, I would argue that the strength of the British Muslim community in Europe has been based on the idea that you have a large number of organisations, uh, you know, youth groups, charitable groups, Islamic organisations, advocacy groups, campaigning groups. That's what makes Muslim civil society very vibrant compared to, I would say, other European uh, countries. And I, uh, I suspect the government understands the role that civil society plays within Muslim public life in the UK and has sought to influence that. In some cases, through, in most cases, I'll argue, through deceitful and disingenuous means. So it's, again, this whole idea of the independence. Every decent civil society uh, over, the, over, the, over, over, over any period, over any age, has been because of a decent civil society, has been independent, strong, confident. And that can challenge the government when it's wrong, and that can have the credibility of the community to bring people together to talk about an issue or to discuss, about, discuss an issue and or speak about the way forward. Um, in regards to the Muslim communities, and I think for the, the average Muslim layman out there, I mean, people like me and you are, you know, are individuals who may have dealing, may have bumped into these organisations, may have received a service, they may be in our local town, our city, our region. And I think, you know, Muslims will want to know that Muslims have got the best, their best interests at heart. And in some case, in a lot of the cases, I'm sure that a good number of the organisations were not aware of the nature of breakthroughs relationship with the Home Office. In some cases, we've seen statements in recent days that they've been that they don't care, that they're very honest about their relationship with with the Home Office of Breakthrough, that they are proud patrons of the prevent strategy, that they're advocates of it, and they're advocates of this really horrid, toxic uh, so-called strategy that's failing everybody. Um, and I think it's a time that we really separate, you know, a lot of the, the mistruths, the telltales, you know, and all the lies we've been hearing about what it means to be Muslim and a Muslim independent grassroots organisation. I think we need to raise the game. We've got a higher standard for ourselves and for our communities. And that uh, there should be a way, surely, for us to ask questions. I mean, if we've found all of this through open source information and material, who knows what else is out there? Powerful words. You've been listening to this Islam 21C podcast. Please share and send us your thoughts and visit islam21c.com to join the conversations shaping tomorrow's narratives.